Hey everybody, this is Warren Sharp, NFL analyst over at Sharp Football Analysis. I want to welcome you to the Ringer Gambling Show. Join me on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays each week during the NFL season with guests Chris Vernon, Ben Solak, and Joe House to guide you through the NFL betting landscape. We'll be talking spreads, game totals, parlays, player props, futures, and much, much more. Be sure to follow the Ringer Gambling Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Full Go presented by FanDuel. The playoff action is heating up, and with FanDuel, you can bet on everything from the NBA Finals MVP to who's going to lift the Stanley Cup. And right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, or SGPs as the kids like to call them, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the pulse and get paid instantly when you win. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Chicago everywhere, check it. What up, world? You're listening to The Full Goal with Jason Golf, presented by The Ringer, a Spotify original. Yeah, yeah. Welcome into episode 27 of the Full Go Podcast with Jason Goff, brought to you by The Ringer. And of course, Spotify is the gang. So on a, on a what is it, an action-packed night, I guess we could say, in Chicago sports, you had both teams playing on Monday night. Uh, Chicago Bulls, I should say both teams, because people don't think there's some kind of bias. But both the teams that I care the most about in this city, the Chicago Bears and the Chicago Bulls, playing on the same night. Monday night football uh, in Pittsburgh. He, under the lights, you had Heinz Field buzzing. My man Ryan Shazier, former Pittsburgh Steeler, who I uh, co-host the Tuesday edition of the Ringer NFL show, was on the sidelines. If you want to hear his uh, take on that, you need to hear this week's version of the Ringer NFL show, the Tuesday version, I should say, uh, because he got into what was going on on the field uh, down by the sidelines. But I didn't get a chance to watch that game until this morning. We're recording right now. It was a Tuesday afternoon, early Tuesday evening, uh, and I – got a chance to watch that game this morning so last night was my birthday and uh turned 41 yesterday had a, a terrific time uh, all weekend long actually I, I i was responsible enough i should say uh hung out with my lady uh hung out with my sister hung out with her fiance hung out with some friends it was great i had a good time the city city treated me well uh got a chance to have some fine meals with the people i love uh and then and then the Bulls game happened, and the, the whole Bulls experience, like you guys know, if you're listening out there, it's the first time you listen, appreciate you jumping in on the pod, but for the people here locally, uh, I do the, obviously, I do the pre and post game show for NBC Sports Chicago, so 
that is a clear and, and present distinction that I make because people think that I get tickets from the Bulls. I, I do not get tickets from the Bulls. Please stop asking me if I get tickets from the Bulls. I get tickets every once in a while from my employer, which is NBC Sports Chicago. So in this moment where I was like, you know what? I don't really do a whole lot for my birthday. I think I'm going to take off. I saw the Brooklyn Nets were on the schedule. Told my lady, hey, man, I think this would be a cool game to go to. She inquired about some tickets. I inquired about some tickets. Next thing you know, the fine folks and especially Kevin Cross over there at NBC uh, send me some tickets and I looked at the tickets and they just happen to be courtside tickets I've never sat courtside before obviously I've been in the press row where the media uh, covers the game but I got a chance actually to sit next to a lot of those dudes who uh, those guys and ladies I should say that that I uh, have have worked next to in the media room and it was a different experience uh, totally um, one, I got caught on camera. Well, I didn't mean caught, but uh, we were on camera, and that was fun because I just knew they were making fun of me or saying whatever they said, and then obviously adorning my lady with all of the compliments that they had they could muster up. Adam and me and Stacey King are, are dudes that I appreciate, and they, uh, they, they sent us off with a nice little hello. Uh, but it was cool. It was a fun experience. Uh, getting that close to the bench and hearing how guys interact. Like I said, I've heard it before, but being in a fan's perspective and not worrying about being uh, objective and covering the game, like uh, there was a moment where James Harden got fouled or thought he got fouled. And of course, the emphasis on fouls this year, especially when it comes to the people are calling it the James Harden rule, where guys are using, uh, you know, imp- not improper. Uh, shots, but guys who are fudging the the fudging the rules just enough, knowing that they don't shoot like that, but flailing just so they can get a little bit of a contact. Next thing you know, they're going to the line. James Harden gets at least what six, seven, eight points a night just off that. So this year, the emphasis on that. He comes down the lane. He gets fouled. I thought he got fouled. He sits right on the on the foundation of the of the uh, the hoop, right, right at the stanchion of the backboard. Next thing you know, he's he's just shaking his head, and I kind of look at him. And my lady looks at him, and we're shaking our heads. It was a cool moment, right? And you got to see Kevin Durant interacting with all the fans on the on the Brooklyn bench. James Johnson, former Chicago Bull, was getting chided by some fans in the stands, and my lady, who doesn't really uh, enjoy sports, not even enjoy, but doesn't take part in, in sports or sporting activities, but does love, you know, a good live event. She enjoyed the the physicality of basketball. She, she, she actually mentioned that, you know, how does, how does the, how do these guys got not get hurt on every play? Or this seems like it's pretty rough or physical. I'm like, yeah, he's a, he's a big dude just running around, flying around. I can't wait till she gets a chance to be either on the sideline or really, really close to one of these football games. So she can see what, what these dudes actually go through, but it was cool. Uh, the Bulls, the Bulls played a game that I know they and we know that they are capable of playing. And defensively, they stepped it up to the point where, yeah, Kevin Durant got his, no doubt about it. I mean, it, he was he was on fire all night. But late in the game, when it was time to challenge, I I, I was looking at certain players. Javante Green. Uh, is a dude who, and, and Dollar Bill Simmons actually texted me during the game saying that he was mad all those years that Javante Green was on the Celtics bench, that Brad Stevens never played him. So I appreciated that, yeah, that, that, uh, that, that gesture to let me know that he was watching the game. But Javante Green did his best on every person that he was against, and it's just what he has to do. But when guys like that have to play minutes for you, it is one of two things. 
their weaknesses are going to be highlighted by the other team and they're going to be deconstructed as a player or or the players around that player start to feed on some of that injury. And when Lonzo Ball is doing it and when Alex Caruso is doing it, all of a sudden DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine have stepped up their defensive game. It was a very, very physical game. And on top of it, the refs were letting dudes play. So when Lonzo Ball at the end of the game kind of – and I thought it was a real – Real G move, because I, I forget if it was DeMar DeRozan or if it was Alex Caruso or Troy Brown, but he yanked a couple of guys off of Kevin Durant after a basket was made just to make sure, hey, I want him in the fourth quarter here or in this moment here. I think I can defend him. And after a layup, Lonzo Ball – no, after a mid-range jump shot, Lonzo Ball was, I won't say talking crazy to Kevin Durant, but he got Kevin Durant's attention and then came down on the other end and guarded him. That kind of win, you could chalk it up to just another NBA night. The, the, the Brooklyn Nets weren't locked in. All of a sudden, they, they beat the Bulls. Or they got beat by the Bulls. But the Bulls, that was a close game uh, in, into the fourth quarter, and the Bulls pulled away. When Steve Nash put a bunch of dudes in that game that you've never heard of it, with, with minutes to go, right, with like three, two and a half minutes to go, you knew that this was one of those, well, we didn't get you this time, but maybe next time. But for the Bulls, it's different. It's a different feeling. You know, they're 7-3. And, three. and th- this November schedule is something that we've talked about that was going to be rough on them. And so far, you know, the home-and-home home against the 76ers did not go their way. But this game against the Brooklyn Nets, I think, will go a, a, a long way because Kevin Durant and James Harden were on the floor, right? Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge were on the floor. Uh, no Kyrie Irving, obviously, for uh, different circumstances. But whenever you, Kevin Durant and James Harden come to your gym and you, they walk away with a loss, that's, that's a different vibe. That's a different feeling. And Bulls fans should be uh, very aware of what this team has put together in terms of fighters, right? There's a lot of dudes who are willing to fight you on this team, whereas before, there was a lot of guys who were either learning how to fight or didn't want to fight you at all. Like when they got punched, it was time to fold up shop and move on to the next game. Not this year. And Zach Levine, I think, has been waiting for this moment, and you're starting to see him embrace it, not just in a way where – he still has to, to me, um, there's still some body language issues that, that may come about uh, where he's just mad at the refs or he's dismayed with a teammate that he may have to understand that everybody's looking at and it's the kind of spotlight, it's the kind of pressure that's put on a person who's getting ready to get the max. So it may not be fair, but it's just, it is what it is. And frankly, DeMar DeRozan, man, like I don't expect him to score 27 a game for the rest of the season or whatever he's at now, but dude. That, the dude is a fit. The dude is doing exactly what you you would hope he would do. Uh, now, if they've got three-point shooting woes, it won't be because of him. It'll be because they're just not knocking down shots around him and around Zach. And Zach is a three-point shooter. Uh, Alex Caruso has a decent jump shot. But th- they got a lot of guys who the ball is ending up in their hands and they aren't three-point marksmen. The fact that Vooch could knock down a couple of threes in the second half should lead to better things because right now Nikola Vucevic is the guy that's still lagging behind Lonzo Ball and still lagging behind Zach Levine and still lagging behind DeMar DeRozan in terms of his acclimation uh, to playing with these new pieces. So, yeah, Bulls win in a big way. It was fun. Got a chance to be on the floor and got a chance to see some some friends too. Sarah Kustak, who does uh, great work uh, for, I believe, still the Yes Network uh, with uh, with the Brooklyn Nets or if it was MSG. No, it's, yeah, it's the Yes Network with Ryan. It, great job. She she uh, 
she continues to uh, you know stretch what it is that is perceived to be what a color, color analyst should sound like in the NBA. There's, there's a lot of a lot of ladies getting those opportunities, and Sarah Kustak is one of those uh, pioneers that they'll be talking about 15, 20 years from now. So it's happy I got a chance to run into her. Wished her. Uh, the best on all her success going forward and continued blessings. And, of course, chopped it up with Adam Amin and Stacey King uh, right there on the on the sideline as well. So it was great. It was a great birthday. Had fun. Uh, made fun of Freddie Gibbs at the other end because Freddie did everything he could do to get uh, those course side tickets and, and – you know, chide his buddy Kevin Durant a little bit. He got a he actually got a jersey from DeMar DeRozan at the end of the game. People were like, hey, you sitting next to Freddie? I was like, no, nah, I didn't locate Freddie until the third quarter of the game where I sent him a text because I saw he was sitting across the way uh, with, with his baby, actually. You know, he was he was help nurse his baby with a bottle while the game was going on. So it was good to see Freddie. I actually had dinner with Freddie at the end of the, of the night as well. So, you know, he uh, treated me and my lady to a, a nice meal in one of the downtown local eateries. So the game all in all was cool. You know, and the birthday was great. Had a chance to hang out with some cool people and people that I love, obviously, my lady. And it was good. It was good. And then this morning came, right? I didn't get to bed too late. Got to bed around 1230 or so. Uh, didn't have too many drinks, you know, didn't do too much vibing because I knew we had the pod and all this work the next day. But got up early this morning and kind of ruined my damn morning because the Chicago Bears, Chicago bared for me. And it was so many things that was wrong with this game. Let me start by saying this. The officiating in that game was horrid. And uh, it's loser's lament usually when you're blaming things on officiating. But let, let's talk about the, the call that everybody's talking about. Cassius Marsh. Gets a sack to force a fourth down and, and, and then gets a penalty for taunting. And I, I argue with Ryan Shazier and James Jones, actually, because they were on both sides of the issue. Should he have gotten a penalty? Should he have not gotten a penalty? And I agree with both those guys. So I, I, I'm in the worst place in this hot take sports radio, sports talk, you know, blogger slash podcast land where I, I'm in the middle on this because I understand if you throw it, but I understand if you don't throw it. Uh, Cassius Marsh went on to celebrate 11 times after this sack, right? He, he did the, the roundhouse, you know, um, you know, Cobra Kai kick out of nowhere. Uh, he, he celebrated with the guys, right? He slapped helmets with those dudes, butted heads as if they haven't had uh, enough uh, head trauma throughout the game, you know, did all that. And then, and then the man proceeds to walk at least five, six yards towards the opposite hash mark towards the Pittsburgh Steelers bench and give them a glare. Now, if you don't know the background on this story, Cassius Marsh is a player who signed at the beginning of the season with the Pittsburgh Steelers. That didn't work out. He was on the Bears practice squad. He gets elevated for his first game against his former team in the Pittsburgh Steelers. He makes a huge play. The Steelers are up 23-20 to 20 at this point, uh, and it's the fourth quarter. So this is a huge play. This is after Ray Ray McLeod fumbled the punt return, and it was recovered and returned by DeAndre Houston Carson, who has been in the middle of some big plays as of late the last couple of weeks. But this is just it, – it, it's – it's disheartening 
for a Bears fan, Bears fan to see that. You know, big game on the road, Monday night football. More, more Monday night and Sunday night games have been national embarrassments for Bears fans than they have been national triumphs. So you're sitting there watching this game and thinking, all right, this is the play. This is the play to get you off the field. You'll put it in the quarterback's hands, win this damn thing, and it'll be the highlight moment of Justin Fields' young career. Well, that came along too because I thought, and as predicted, and if I didn't predict it, then I would never ever attest to saying this, but I thought Justin Fields was going to have a big game because I don't think that that Pittsburgh team is that good, right? And meanwhile, they've got like all pro type players at each level in, in Cam Hayward and TJ Watt and, of course, in Minka Fitzpatrick. By the way, Minka Fitzpatrick was as good as anybody on that field uh, on Monday Night Football. Like The things that he, f- he forced the Bears not to do or the things, the passes that weren't even thrown in the direction. Like, for instance, there was one third down play where I believe this was the in- – no, it wasn't the interception, but there was a third down play where Justin Fields wants to throw a, a quick slant to Cole Komet, who's lined up in the slot, I believe, and Micah Fitzpatrick sees it and just darts down into the middle of the field where the inside linebacker would have been. He vacated that uh, – they, they both vacated that because they're, they're – I believe their coverage forced them to have kind of like that that flat or hook responsibility where if Cole Komet runs a hook, then you stay there. If if the ball goes out to the flat, Najee Harris, you're there. But they have to replace it with a safety. You, you replace it with one of the best safeties in the game who's playing a lot of single high safety on his own, a lot of cover one in Minka Fitzpatrick. He, he makes a play. Justin Fields, I believe, has to scramble. They have to punt. Like there were a lot of plays like that last night. But Justin Fields, if you're a Bears fan, that's the game we're talking about. Like, that's the game where you say to yourself, there might be something here. I've been saying that since preseason, since I saw him at Ohio State. I'm just waiting for it to be uh, unleashed on the NFL. I'm, I'm waiting for it to unravel the way, the way it should. But if there were enough throws and enough plays to feel good as a Bears fan. But there's also, as I mentioned, the Cassius Marsh play. But if you want to discount that as just a bad call, if you want to discount that as the, the referees jumping into a game they had no business being, first of all, Tony Carranti and his staff had a horrible game, right? The hip check that he threw at the dude is just unnecessary. Uh, and, and throwing the flag thereafter, like spiking the ball on him, you know, no pun intended. But the 10 penalties and 95 yards that it amassed before that should be uh, highlighted as well. You know, how many times pre-snap are you lining up offsides? I believe there were three times and two by the same player. I believe Robert Quinn had two on him, right? That These things can't happen, especially when you're not as talented as the other team. Uh, the margin and the window for error is, is so minuscule, right? So you're sitting in the cut thinking as a Bears fan, you can't do this, you can't do that, and a lot of things happen that you just can't do. You just can't do. And then I will say this, the Bears defense, I thought, played a pretty damn good game until the money possession because you tell me there's no Khalil Mack there's no Eddie Jackson and you're going into a hostile territory where Najee Harris is already one of the better running backs in the league right he's just a rookie so everybody's got to wait and see no I ain't got to wait and see with that dude he's what second or third and catches among running backs he's got like the third or fourth most touchdowns from scrimmage among running backs and they just really started giving him the ball the last three or four games right 
Like, they're just really noticing that he is the best player on the offense. Definitely not Ben Roethlisberger. Hell, Pat Fryermuth is out there catching two touchdown passes uh, in his, you know, his rookie campaign, coming into that game with only two, I believe, or one before that. So it, this, this is a team that you, you thought the defense would fare well against, and I think for the most part they did a decent enough job. The Pittsburgh Steelers won that game because their special teams kept them in terrific field position all game long, and their defense kept them in terrific field position all game long. The Bears and Pat O'Donnell were punting from their inside their own 30 far too much for my liking, and I, I, I noted it too. I mean, how many times do I have in my notes here where great field position to start for the Steelers offense? They're on their own 41, right? Uh, Jakeem Grant returns a kickoff to the 10, by the way, after a touchdown to put them up 7 to nothing it, to the 10. So you get poor starting field position for an offense that's already poor. And by the way, the Jakeem Grant situation, like he may pop one every once in a while, but for the most part, that has been a net negative to me. Right, having a, a punt returner and a kickoff returner that's that aggressive, for whatever reason, Tabor's blocking schemes ain't uh, you know building up to what he's supposed to be to to as a, as a punt returner. But the special teams, you know, they give up the most punt return yards in all of football, and then on top of it, you're giving poor poor starting field position to a, an offense that is, let's say, the worst in the league or one of the worst in the league. So. Going into it, you're putting your defense in an adverse situation. I thought the defense fared well. I don't think Akeem Hicks is moving like Akeem Hicks and obviously no Khalil Mack. Um, the Danny Trevathan thing, I know he made a couple of plays, but Danny Trevathan is cooked. Like, Danny Trevathan is donezo. And, you know, Christian Jones is, is filling in there. I know Alec Ogletree has is, is played well in spots. But Roquan Smith, the reason why Roquan Smith looks so awesome is because he's making a lot of plays for his, his fellow inside linebacker made as well, whether it be Christian Jones or Alec Ogletree or Danny Trevathan. So, yeah, the defense is banged up, but I thought they played a good game until the money possession where, you know, there, there's too many – too many times where we talked about that secondary and too many times we talked about, you know, Sean Desai having to put extra pressure with a fourth and fifth man. It's not going to get it done with that secondary. They're not going to be able to go one-on-one -on -one with guys for a long enough period of time, especially in a money uh, possession, you know, at home for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So it didn't hold up the way that I thought it would hold up. It had hold, held up through the entirety of the game. So the Bears defense didn't have an awful game to me, but uh, in the money downs and the money possession, they, they did not come through. So, you know, all in all, it's, it's a tough game to watch. But for me, as a future and present Justin Fields fan, that's the game. That's the game. Those are the throws. Those are the runs. I mean, in the run game, he was, I, I think, dynamic enough. Uh, but those are the throws and those are the runs. That, that's the reason why you, dra you trade up to draft a guy like that. And these are, these are building blocks. The, the game previous, when he was responsible for two touchdowns, you know, had 100 yards rushing, had 178 yards or something like that passing, like him gaining real estate and getting real estate and, and moving the ball and moving the chains is all you ask for. Obviously, you're going to get to the point where you're asking for more productivity in the red zone. And by the way, three straight passes to Jimmy Graham, the second one that was negated by a penalty, uh, it's a little much for my liking. It, you know, uh, a really good team's going to know that you're putting him out there for the fade. You got to connect on it. Jimmy Graham dropped one of those balls. I believe it's the first one. You got to connect if you're Jimmy Graham. You got to help your, your young quarterback out. But they didn't run the ball as much as I would have liked them to. And their offensive line was, was under siege for some very important stretches in that game. But all in all, as a Bears fan, 
I saw what I needed to see out of Justin Fields. And from this point on, that's all you're going to be looking for. We'll be back with more of the full goal with Jason Goff. After a word from our sponsors. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Bears talk with Jason Goff on the full goal. And the kick is good for the win. Fade to black. Brought to you by The Ringer, a Spotify original. It is the Full Go Podcast with Jason Goff, brought to you by The Ringer and Spotify is the gang. We have the pleasure of being joined now by NFL reporter and so much more, to me at least. You know, he wanted to be humble uh, when we were talking about who, what I wanted to interview, uh, introduce him as. He is Jim Trotter. Uh, you can see him all over the place. You can read his writing. He, he, I, last time I saw you, Jim, and this is, this is huge for me because, and we don't have to spend too much time on it, but the, the words that you had during the John Gruden situation a couple of weeks back really struck a chord with me because, one, you, know, you and Steve Weish being on that show uh, talking about that. I, I, you know, locally here in the city, you, know, you run into times where something happens and immediately it's call the black guy, right? Like call the black guy to talk about the black things. And, and then you're like, you're sitting there, you're like, this is how it could work. Or this is, everybody knows how it could work and everybody knows what they need to do, right? The, it will stop when, when, when certain people stop being certain people for certain reasons, right? So as we take a look at it now, you know, how healthy is the league when uh, the league that you've covered for a while, the league that you are uh, covering and observing now? How many how many changes have been made, and how healthy is the league in terms of not just the optics, but what the goal is in terms of equality and actual equity that 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 the the decision makers uh, at the top aren't going to change anytime soon. So how what's the cap, I guess, on the health of the league when it comes to? Uh, some of these social issues that we talk about uh, frequently? Well, I think you just answered your own question when you said it's not going to change anytime soon. So if we're not going to see change, then I don't think it's healthy at all. You know, as I laid out that day, um, the NFL has to turn the camera on itself sometime and, and take a look at what's happening in its own shop before it can comment on what's going on outside. And as I said that day, when you look at the league office, you know, I think there are um, 11 executive vice presidents, only two are uh, black. When you look at the NFL media group, um, where we cover a league that is the player population is 70% black. And in the newsroom, we do not have one decision maker who is black um, among senior management. That's a problem. Um, we've talked about you know, the issues on the field as it relates to head coaches and general managers. So the thing that's so frustrating for me is I think there are a lot of good people at the NFL, whether it's at the league office, whether it's at the NFL media group and whatnot. Um, and yet there seems to be this sort of ceiling, if you will, for, for black people in particular, as it relates to reaching the highest levels 
of of the NFL. So when they put out all these statements and and hashtags and you know these agendas and whatnot, to me, I'm just saying it all seems performative if you're not going to make real change at the top. And the fact that we have never had a black owner in the NFL, the fact that we have only had one black club president in the 101 year history of the NFL, and that was last year, and it came out of you know, the Dan Snyder investigation. Um, If that's not troubling to you, then I think you're kind of telling on yourself. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, so you mean to tell me lift every voice and sing wasn't going to solve everything, right? That that didn't do it. I remember when that press release went out, dog, I was like, wait a minute, hold on. Yeah, like I'm thinking like, is this an onion headline or like did did Chappelle get a hold of this one and spin it on like lift every voice and sing? Like that's that's as bad as in racism or like salute to everyone, whatever hashtag you want to put on the sideline. I will never forget when I first heard that I was like you. I'm like, is this for real? You know, this can't be for real. And then I never forget the first week, you know, it's during COVID. The first week I'm in LA at the Rams game. And I think only one Rams player, maybe two, were even out on the field during the playing of of the Black National Anthem. So, you know, afterwards, you know, Sean McVay said that there was an issue with the scheduling and some guys were not sure about whatever, whatever. But I'm just like, that was such a bad idea. You know, it's just like... Stop trying so hard. I always say this, and I, and I mean this. And again, I have to preface this again by saying I think there are some really good people. Of course. And whatnot. So I always have to be careful with that because everybody no, thinks I got you. then you're attacking your bosses and whatnot. No. But I'm saying stop worrying about optics. Stop worrying about being patted on the back. Stop worrying about looking as if you are, you know, um, um, empathetic and all these things. Just do the work. Just do the work and everything else will take care of itself. You know, I always say that and I believe that firmly. You know, you don't I I get how we are in such a PR driven age and and how optics matter and all of those things. But at the end of the day, if you do the work, everything will take care of itself. So that's where I'm at on this thing, man. As I said, I'm not into slogans. I'm not into hashtags. I'm not into performative acts. I'm into can we just do the work and be real about what's going on? Speaking of doing the work, uh, how has the job of reporter changed uh, since the moment you got in the business and to now? Because I, uh, I respect I respect journalists and journalism in a way that I don't call myself one. I did I wasn't schooled in it. Like I got into radio when I was 19, 20 years old and learned through sports radio and some goods and some a lot of bad, right? And sourcing and all that kind of stuff and, and making sure that you are uh, doing your due diligence with stories. Like how has that changed along the way? I'm sure social media has had a great impact on it, but for you, knowing that what you learned and knowing what it is now, what's the biggest differences for you? Right. It's we could be here all day with that question. I mean, seriously, I, I came into the business. I graduated from Howard in 1986, man. OK, we didn't even have the Internet back then. You know, cell phones were the size of, of the brick of, phones. Yeah. The dope boy phones. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, so it, it was it was a completely different age. And, and to see how fast technology has changed since then and, and what is the relative blink of an eye. It's just stunning to me. And so 
the impact it has had on the job, again, we could be here all day. I will say this to you. I have seen so many lines. Back when I came out, the lines of how you do your job and what you could do were clearly yeah. defined, yeah. you know, particularly as it related to, say, conflicts of interest. All of that is out the window now for the most part. The, the, you know, when I came in, newspapers were primarily owned by families. So there, there was not this, at least I didn't sense it, this, this, this um, priority to put profits yeah. over people yeah. and, and, and the integrity of the business. Now, many of these media companies are owned by hedge funds or other others where profit is all it's about for the most part. And that dictates the content. Without question. And I always say this, look, I don't want to just put it on people trying to make money out there. You know, it's on the public as well, because today, for instance, I can have in my left hand on, on, on the left side of the ledger, the scale, a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative piece, let's say about Flint water. Yeah. And then over here on the right side of the scale, I could have a piece about the 10 hottest wives in the NFL. Right. Or a list. Because motherfuckers know they love a list. Sure. <laughs> and 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 this, the list or the hottest wives is going to outdo that Pulitzer Prize winning piece in terms of clicks by an expo- exponential margin. Mm. And that's the culture we live in today. So if you're running a business and your priority is profit, then of course you're gonna give more of this stuff over here than what we would call, you and I would call real journalism. Um, and sometimes I feel like that old dude, you know, that old cantankerous dude who's like, get off the curmudgeon, get off my lawn, you know? Cause I'm like trying to, to fight for what I what I knew coming out of school. You're planting that flag. But <laughs> meanwhile, I, IG DMs are flying back and forth. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I'm losing the battle. I feel, man, and particularly in an age where, you know, you have a former president who everything was fake news, and now you've got right. you know half the country believing that anything a journalist says, if it's not from that person's point of view, is a lie. It's a problem, man, because, again, when I when I came out, what I was raised on, our purpose as journalists primarily was to provide the public with information that affects their daily lives so that they can make informed decisions. Okay, And that's not where we're at today, because folks only want to I shouldn't say I shouldn't generalize, but there are many who only want to hear what they want to hear and what they believe. And so, you know, I haven't even begun to talk about sports, but um, that's where we are, man. And it, it's troubling, you know. So I started, um, I know I'm being long-winded here. No, you're good, but buddy. We got a long-form situation here. You know, I, I started teaching at San Diego State um, this fall, teaching one journalism class, sports journalism class. And um, I just said to myself, the thing I wanted to do with this class is two things. Um, is number one, I wanted to make sure that these students, if they were to step into a newsroom tomorrow, that they would be able to function. Okay. And then the other thing I wanted to do with them is just say that I helped them to understand how to think critically, you know, and to just not go with hot takes and go with the flow, but to be able to think critically about what they're writing, why they're writing it, and how they're writing it. 
Because I'm telling you, man, today, the stuff that I'm seeing, particularly from, from young journalists, it's troubling. Yeah. You know, it's troubling. And I don't put that all on them. So I don't want anyone to think I'm one of these old dudes who's like bagging on young people. I'm not. I think part of it is on us, some of us older folks who aren't really giving them the tools and the foundation of what this is really supposed to be about. So how much responsibility is on the consumer, right? Because I, I think about this and the first thing I think about, and it's just my, you know, ridiculous 80s brain, uh, but I think about hip hop music, right? And I think about it back in the day, and I sound like the get off my lawn do now, but I, you know, along with, um, MC Brains, you had Poor Righteous Teachers, or you, you know what I'm saying, you had Tone Look, but you also had Public Enemy. And, right. and now, when people are like, there is no real hip-hop, I'm like, no, no, you gotta find it. That's all. Like, you gotta find it. I feel that same way about news now. Like, I know what's playing in the barbershops. I know what's playing in the salons. I know, you know, you gotta get your hottest takeoff, and shout out to everybody who does that for a living, and, and, and feeds their family with it. How... Do you feel like the 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 journalism or the news or the stuff we talk about is ever going to win? Because I've 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 been in these meetings where I've hosted shows with athletes and I've heard program directors or executive producers look athletes in the eye and say, "People don't want to hear about the dense stuff. They 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 don't they want you to make the noises. They want you to talk about your experiences." And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm one of those people that I'm just tired of hearing buzzwords and cliches or catchphrases. Now, being in the business is a little different because you you know you know the difference between a three technique and a and a two gapper or you know a a cover two versus a cover three, like our single high safety. But what about the people who are watching who have no idea what that is and can be brought into the game? And I've been shouted down in some of those meetings. So do you feel like that kind of stuff, it, we're going to get back to it? Or is it such a niche audience that they like that underground band is going to have those 5,000 people buy their records and be straight, right? Like, yeah. is there ever going to be like a cyclical kind of vibe to it where it comes back to that? Or are we just... Are we in the hot take culture forever in a day? I, I sadly think we're in the hot cult, hot take culture forever in a day. Now, that said, I think there are always going to be people like you and me. Like, I'm one of those people. I still like to hold a book. You know, <laughs> I don't like to read on Kindle. So there are always going to be people like yes, us who, who, who are old school and have a way that we want to do it. So there will always be an audience for that. The question is, where do people like myself, um, and others who think that way in terms of the profession, where do we go? How do we, how do we not get caught up in the hot take culture? Um, you know, one of the things, like when I was at ESPN, man, it broke my heart when I heard that Outside the Lines was going off. Duh. And Sports and reporters, I, all that. <laughs> I just, you know, I'm like... <laughs> I used to wake up on, on like on a weekend and expect to hear three crotchety brothers or white men or ladies mostly go after. Men. Yeah, I was about to say I was I was gonna say you know, mostly white men, but like when they started to filter the brothers in there, Ralph Wiley and such. Like I used to look forward to that because that was the conversation that I appreciated. Like you like, know what you said a name, and I'm glad you mentioned it, um, Ralph Wiley, because he's one of the reasons I'm in this business. You know, back in the day, and like. Here, here's the thing, and I know I'm taking this in a different direction a little bit. That's all good. But, but look, I'm closer to the finish line than I am to the beginning line in this career, and, and I don't have much time left. I know that. I realize that, and, and I'm comfortable with that. 
And so I've kind of made a decision that in the time I have left, I want to speak on things that maybe I didn't speak on when I was younger and that maybe even people don't want to hear, but it needs to be said. And so I feel like people who look like me have not gotten their full due in terms of the job that we do. And so when I look at, for instance, the Hall of Fame and the McCann Award, which goes to a media member, you know, um, a writer, and I say there isn't one black person who has ever won that award. That's wild. And, and there have been white columnists who have won it. And I'm not saying they're not deserving, but I'm just saying there have been white columnists who have won it. But yet for me, a guy like Ralph Wiley, man, that was who I looked up to. Yep. But he wasn't part of the fraternity, if you will. And so I don't feel he's ever gotten his, his true due. And so I'm pushing now to try and get somebody like Ralph or Brian Burwell, or even yes. now a, a Jared Bell, who has been doing it forever. I'm trying to, to say to some of my colleagues, it's time. You know, you can't just, the people covering this league are not, they do not all look alike. You know, it's not homogenous. Right. So for some of us, this means a lot. And I know people get tired of me. They say, why do you always bring up race and this that, and the other? And it's like, I really wish I didn't have to. Man. <laughs> no. Say it again. It's exhausting. It. It's exhausting. But I, there are just things that need to be talked about. There, need, there are things that need to have a spotlight shined on it. And... Folks need to understand, man, that that this stuff means something to us, man. You know, and for me, for a guy like Ralph Wiley to not have a place in the halls of Canton. It's ridiculous. Knowing that he was and, and during my time, he was the only national black yes, sir. NFL writer that I knew of. And he was working as Sports Illustrated at that time, which, you know, was. Man, Sports Illustrated the was publication. Like, yeah. Dude, it was like out in the orbit. You know, yeah. it was something even when I was growing up, I never even aspired to because I just thought it was never possible. And so to have Ralph Wiley your way there. Yeah. was incredible. So <laughs> that's why I just I just say in the time I have left, I'm trying to educate this young group that's coming up behind us. And I'm trying to, to give some flowers to people and some recognition who deserve it. And to hopefully that we get a little bit you know, I realize we're not going to level this playing field in my lifetime, but, you know, I'll never forget. I wrote um, a couple of years ago about the lack of diversity among head coaches, general managers in the NFL. Mm -hmm. And so one of the one of the you can call them part of the old guard, someone who should have been a head coach during his day, got an opportunity, never did was Jimmy Ray. And I will never forget asking Jimmy Ray do you think we are ever going to see this field get leveled? And man, it was so sobering what he said to me. And, I'm, and, and I wish I had the quote in front of me. I'd read it to you, but I'll try and paraphrase it. He said to me, not in my lifetime. And he said, racism is so inbred and so systemic in our society that it will not change in his lifetime. And I, you know, it's dark, man, dude, it was, it was, it was so sobering to me yeah. to think that, that while we're out here fighting this fight and trying to fight this fight, that this man who I respect so much and who has paid his dues 
and everything else has almost lost his sense of, of, of hope as it relates to this issue. And as you know, the worst thing you could ever have with an individual is a loss of hope, you know? Because if you yeah. don't have that, what's the point, yeah. you know? So yeah. anyway, yeah. I got off topic. No, nah, man. No, nah, it's just appreciated. I'm glad you mentioned Brian Burwell, too, because I'll never forget covering a Final Four, and there's like a little huddle of guys, and it's like the dudes, you know, like Michael Wilbon, Brian Burwell, and uh, I was one other gentleman, and I'm just in the corner, just, you know, I'm looking at them like, that's it right there. Like, these are the dudes. And Brian Burwell asked me to come over, and I was like, hey, man, I, I booked you on my show a couple of times in Chicago. It was a pleasure to meet you. He was like, I don't care about that, man. What you think about this? And we started talking, and I'm like, wait a minute. Like, these dudes, the people that you think are your superheroes or the, the guys that you look up to here locally, too, the guys like Dan Jiggets and dudes who were the faces of things that I didn't see many black faces in kind of made me feel like, oh, okay. Because, you know, as a kid, I always did book reports on black men and women that I appreciated so much so that I would go off the list. I would get in trouble like, you know, Thurgood Marshall and, uh. and, and Marcus Garvey as a kid. And I would get in trouble for these things. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just trying to show you how dope some of the things that, that I came up learning as, as first generation in this country. My parents yeah. are from Belize. So it was like, you know, learn as much as you possibly can about a country that we came to. Right. And that this black history goes beyond Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And dog. <laughs> Rosa Parks, right? <laughs> right, right, right. There's, there's some other people out there that you yeah. don't know about that I'm like, hey, eighth grade teacher, well, what do you think about the Harlem Renaissance? You know what I'm saying? So so to, to, to hear that name, Brian Burwell, and to hear, you know, to bring up the names of Ralph Wiley and William C. Roden and some guys and, and, and ladies that, you know, Robin Roberts, you know, I, I look at Robin Roberts now and I'm like, yo, I remember watching Robin Roberts as a kid and now she is an icon. Right. So these are the people that I, that I will never, ever um, get tired of seeing people like you and Steve Weiss, you know, extol the virtues of. And from that joyous uh, celebration of blackness to the Bears, um, <laughs> man, Justin Fields is the dude that I thought he was going to be. And yes. I think he will be going forward. And I, I scratch my head and say, man, just just think if you would have got those uh, those preseason training camp first team reps. Right. You see the kind of, the 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 kind of relationship he's built with Darnell Mooney as opposed to Allen Robinson. You know what Matt Nagy's fate will be at some point here in the next year or so or this offseason. Uh, the Bears quarterback situation, you know, I'm, I'm 41. I turned 41 yesterday. I've been watching a lot of bad quarterbacks for a long time. How, uh, how enthused are you after Monday night's performance, after the week before that, which was his best game? How enthused are you about what Justin Fields can be in the Chicago offense? Extremely enthused. I think once uh, Matt Nagy gave up play calling, I think we finally saw where you had a team – that was finally trying to work around a player's skill set. Mm. The thing that gets me in the NFL, particularly about quarterbacking and young quarterbacks, is we are very quick to say a player was a bust. And we don't look at the situation that he was put into. And the thing I love, for instance, and I'm going to get back to Justin, mm -hmm. but the thing I love, for instance, in Baltimore is that John Harbaugh, Ozzie Newsome, in that day, I know Ozzie's um, – quote unquote, retired now. Right. But what they did is they said, we have a player with a unique skill set 
And therefore, we're going to do everything we can to build around his skill set and not say to him, you come in and run our offense. And so, for instance, they bring in a Greg Roman who had success with Colin Kaepernick in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. They start bringing in personnel that fit what they are trying to do with Lamar Jackson. And look at what he has done. In my opinion, he's, he's the early MVP. He is the MVP right now, midway, yeah. midpoint of the season. Um, so to me, that's a sign of a good organization that understands we are going to accentuate what our, our best players do as opposed to say, you're going to do what we do. And there's a lot of ego in the NFL among coaches that say, no, you're going to do it my way. You're going to do what I do. Having said that, now what I see with Laser and, and Justin Fields is they are saying, what does Justin do well? And now let's utilize that. One of the things I saw uh, last night in the game that really impressed me was not just that they opened up the playbook more and he went downfield more, but it was the fact that Justin said, look, I'm not, I know my, he would never say this publicly. Right. I'm, I'm trying to get in his head. Uh -huh. I know my, my pass protection is not the greatest. And therefore, I'm not going to hurt myself by sitting back there and just waiting on the rush to come. So I'm going to look at my first read. I'm going to look at maybe my second read. And if it's not there, I'm gone. And he was very decisive yesterday in that, which I thought was tremendous. Stayed out of negative plays in that way. And then when laser, they wanted to go downfield, they would go to sort of a max protect and now he had some time to try and get the ball downfield. I still don't understand the 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 back to back throws to to uh, Jimmy Graham. Yeah, I still don't get yeah. that. But I'm I'm Three. gonna give that <laughs> yeah because of what I saw later in the game. So I'm gonna give I'm right. gonna give a pass on that. Right. So no, I think Justin Field, if they continue to do what they are now doing and start to put the parts around him, I think he is going to be exactly what you and I thought he could be. If they don't do that then it could be a struggle for him because they are not putting him in the best position to be successful. The development of quarterbacks is how we got to this conversation. Uh, I've always wondered, and you've been around the game a long, long time, are, are more quarterbacks ruined than developed? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, I would say that. Um, <laughs> and again, it goes back to coaches having egos. You know, and because I look like, at some of these guys, I'm like, if this dude was killing it in college and the next right. level, like he's never really been filtered out along the process. Pee wee, high school. Now he's killing it in college. The next step, the progression should be. And of course, it's a crapshoot. Right. Guys get money. Things happen or you never know what a person is dealing with. The infrastructure for a team might be shitty. But like I, the fact that four or five quarterbacks are drafted every year and you're like, all right, one of these guys is going to be OK. It's kind of lends to me that maybe the process is a little flawed. Oh, without question. You know, what happens is, especially the older coaches say, for instance, maybe they had a guy who was really successful. Mm -hmm. And so whoever the next quarterback is, they're expecting him to do exactly what his predecessor did. Well, his skill set might not be exactly the same, or he might not process information exactly the same way as his predecessor did. And so if you're not taking all of that into account, then you're doing a disservice to that player. I always say this, people learn in different ways. Like some people can learn on the whiteboard. Some people have to learn on the field through mm -hmm. experience. I was one of those guys. I wasn't a whiteboard guy when I was even going back to Pop Warner. I'll never forget we, one time I, at, at the time 
you know, being black, they're going to stick you at running back right off of course. the bat, even if you're not. Right. <laughs> so I'll never forget the coaches. They're teaching um, how to follow your blocker. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're, they're showing that you want to run outside of the helmet. You want to stay outside of the helmet, whatnot, whatnot. Well, I'm sitting there watching it and everything, and I'm thinking I'm following. And so he lines me up. And the first thing I do is I cut under the helmet. Right. And he's like, what did you miss here? And for me, it, it wasn't so much that I missed it. It was that I have to make a mistake for me to learn, you know, to okay. some degree. I have, okay. to, I have to experience it for it to stick with me. I'm sure that works in relationships, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going yeah. to try that one as soon as we're off the Zoom. Hey, baby, yeah. I got it. If, if, I, I didn't if, know. If, yeah, if they hang around. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, but go uh, ahead. My bad. My bad. No, no, it's all good. But, but that's, you know, that's that's me. That's, that's you know, in terms of that. Yeah. So um, even in class, it's like you can tell me how to do something, but mm. until you put me up on the board and have me do it, I'm not going to be as proficient with it. So um, that's what happens a lot with quarterbacks. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that there are some coaches who who don't get that. I think it's getting better, but I also think this too: the league had no no choice now but to change if it wanted to survive at the most important position. Yes, sir. In the NFL, yeah. And when you've got all these players coming out of high school and college who are running RPOs and who are not being developed as traditional pocket passers, um, you can try and make them do that, but you're not going to be successful. But this, this, I'm, I'm going to say for Jim, stop making these brothers stay in the pocket when they can move around. You know, you, you had Steve Young and Fran Tarkenton and maybe Johnny Manziel, and other than that, everybody was a drop-back passer. These brothers are always in the – like, I understand you get the only, only sport that protects, you know, the, the best player on the team with five men. I can dig it. But when, watching Justin Fields is maddening. You're asking a dude to stay behind a, a, a piss poor offensive line at best, at best. And then on top of it, hey, here are your targets. There's a bunch of twos and threes out here. Enjoy your time against Miles Garrett, Jadavian Clowney, TJ Watt, whoever the pass rusher may be. Like I'm, I'm no, you know, you you know these things a lot better than I do. As but. Right, man, like cut the field and have let that man run around a little bit. You know, you got these designed runs for him these last couple of games. I'm like, where was that the first two, three games? Right. Like, but yeah, I I digress. Just stop keeping these brothers in the damn pocket, man. Let them let them run around a little bit if they need to. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing is it's not you have to have a plan, you know, like you have to sit down and say, how are we going to develop this player? Not like, here. Don't just go run around. But what is our plan for the running, getting him out in space? Yeah. You know, or creating opportunities or running lanes or whatever. If that's what you want to do. Um, you know, we've seen in San Francisco a little bit early in the season when 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 Kyle Shanahan would bring uh, Trey Lance in. He had a specific package for him just to kind of get his feet wet about the NFL and whatnot. And I think more teams have to have to do that. You know, it's not enough. When you say you're going to develop a quarterback, I want you to sit down. If, if I'm an owner, I want you to sit down and show me exactly how you're going to develop. Them. What is our plan here? Not just that we're going to sit him early, for instance, and give him time to see the field and, and all of that. Because that worked for Jordan Love this week. You know, I want to know specifically what are we doing day to day? Right. 
practice to practice, right. meeting to meeting. How are we developing this kid? What what is our plan? And I don't think I don't think enough teams have those types of plans. The other thing I, I don't think they have um, is the right right quarterback coach too, because uh, the quarterback coach is the one who is working with whoever that is every day. He's in the meeting room. He's teaching fundamentals, all of these things, and it blows my mind sometimes how differently they speak in terms of what they place a priority on. Okay. And I find that fascinating because there are only 32 teams. It's a very small league. And you would think that everyone is kind of in terms of teaching has an understanding or a belief in certain things, but it's amazing how in some places fundamentals are critical. And then in others, that's like an afterthought, even though they say it's not, you can watch the player and know it's an afterthought. Um, so it's all just fascinating, man. But I, with the young people, I say you got to have a plan and you got to stick to that plan. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's uh, sports, man. The 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 greatest uh, study of human behavior uh, that's ever been known to man. Because you see in pressurized situations what people really are. You know, whether it be the coaches, whether it be the developmental staff or the training staff that can't get people back on the field or forcing people back on the field too early. It, it takes a lot. It takes a lot. Um, you get like, I'm going to say this. I'm going to get in trouble. I'm going to get in trouble for this. Oh, go I'm, right ahead. Go right no, ahead. No, no, but I, I, I know I'm going to get in trouble. But when we like, it's interesting to me when like personnel people always talk about character and all that. And at the quarterback position, you got to have character and this that, and the other. Right. And so I'm watching in the last week how this whole Odell thing played out. And look, I know Odell can be a little difficult, but the one thing we know from teammates is no one has ever said he is not a hard worker, right? not a good teammate, this and the other. And I'm listening to Johnny Manziel try and speak about leadership and these sorts of things. And I'm saying, dude, all I need to know about you is the videotape I saw of you running away from your girlfriend when you were put in a pressure situation. That told me everything I need to know about your character. So all this other stuff, I don't ever want to hear you lecture another player, another man, about how he's conducting himself. When I saw you try and run away and leave your girlfriend behind to handle the heat. So I know I'm going to catch heat for that. I really don't care. Cause that's the way I feel. If we're talking about real a person's character, that's your character. Yeah. And that yeah. moment of, of of pressure. Yeah. When the heat was on, how do you respond? Yeah. Talking to player personnel people, I, I've I've quite uh, I've always heard the the football character, right? Like whenever we hear about a guy like maybe you know bending the rules or going outside the law, and you're like oh, but this guy's got great football character. I'm like, well. At some point, that other shit's going to pop up, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's probably going to pop up in the worst moment for you. So be be very uh, leery of just, just putting things on how a person reacts on the field. At some yeah, point, somebody's going to see it's something. It's interesting what we, what we tend to forget and what we tend not to forget, you know? Yeah, yeah it's, anyway. it's real. It's real. No, nah, man, you've, you've given us uh, more time than than um, I thought we were going to get. And I truly, truly appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate your work. I appreciate your uh, your standing in in this thing. And you are respected by a lot of people who I respect. So that, you know, keep doing your thing. And before we let you go here, two last questions for you. First one, 
best and worst day of your career? Worst day was was um, hearing of the death of Junior Seau. Mm. That was the worst because, you know, I've said this before and it's true. I'm not where I'm at today without him. You know, Tell me more. <laughs> I had never covered an NFL um, as, a, as a full-time beat writer and particularly as a lead beat writer. I had never covered an NFL locker room before I was assigned to the Charger beat back in 96. Oh, wow. And I'll never forget the first day I walked in the locker room. It was off season. And um, there were only two players in there and it was junior and one other guy. And so we walk in the door and on the far side of the room, juniors getting ready to walk into the training room, trainer's room. And he turns around and he sees me and he calls me over. Now I've never met him before. So he calls me over and he says, um, he goes, Oh, you're the new guy. Right. And I'm like, yeah, you know, and he says, oh, he says, I'm Junior Seau, you know, nice to meet you. And I'm thinking, this dude doesn't have to introduce himself. Right, why is this happening? Right. He's like, the dude, right. you know, and so we talk for a minute and then he says, look, he says, take my number. And he says, if you ever need anything, you call me. Oh. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute here. I've heard Junior can be kind of difficult with the media. And so am I being punked here? What's going on? So, you know, I'm curious as to if this is real or not. So a couple of weeks pass and I want to call the number, but I got no reason to call the number. And finally something happened. I called it, you know, and I'm kind of expecting to hear Domino's pizza or something. And, <laughs> and, um, and it's Junior's voice. Uh -huh. And I left a message and he called me back, you know, shortly after. So I knew he was real. But the reason I say I would not be where I am today without him is, People think because we had a great relationship, he was always feeding me information. He never fed me information. That was not him. If any, anyone who knew him knew, he was very protective of the team and his teammates. So he was not going to give you dirt. How he helped me is he helped me understand the culture of a locker room. He helped me understand the mind of an NFL athlete, particularly elite athletes, because there was one offseason where the Chargers went out and signed a cornerback. Um, his name was Ryan McNeil to a huge contract. Yeah, yeah. So we get to training camp and Ryan McNeil looks awful. And I mean, he's getting beat left and right. And it's like, man, what were the Chargers thinking? So I'm getting to the point where I'm like, am I going to have to write a story saying they blew this? So I go and I talk to Junior because obviously he's the leader of the defense and leader of the locker room. And he said to me, and I'm, I'm a young guy at that time. And he said to me, you need to understand. This is the time of year when veteran players work on their weaknesses, not their strengths. And he said that way, when they get to the season, their weaknesses are not as pronounced. Well, fast forward to the end of that season, Ryan McNeil led the NFL in interceptions. So imagine how silly I would have looked mm. if I had written that story. So those are the kind of things where he helped me, again, in terms of understanding the culture of a locker room, the culture of the NFL, all those sorts of things. So when he passed, when he took his life, um, that was an incredibly difficult day. Um, in terms of, you know, the most memorable, mm -hmm. I mean, there are a number of things that pop up. But probably the most memorable for me, which stands out in my mind, I was covering the NBA and um, was was new to the beat. 
was covering the finals and it was the year the the bulls won the championship after um michael jordan's father had been murdered oh okay so it was uh 96 and i walk in the locker room and 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 he's on the floor in the fetal position holding the trophy just crying you know and it was just such a powerful moment that the image was so powerful i've never forgotten it and it just stands as my out in my mind i've seen a lot of great games a lot of other things but just the emotion of that knowing that he had lost his father knowing he had just won this championship um and just trying to put myself in his shoes about what that moment would have been like that your best friend yeah. isn't there with you was just so powerful so that was the most that would probably be the most memorable moment i've had you know and the other one was probably Junior. the day I, I walked into the newsroom and and heard there was going to be a press conference saying magic johnson was hiv positive you know at yeah. that time yeah we all thought it was a death sentence and you know loving magic the way that i did watching him play um I, just, I couldn't remember. It's funny, man, when you ask that question, that you would think the most memorable moments would be these good things, but they're not for me. Yeah. You know, it, there's Junior dying, there's yeah. the magic announcement. And then the other one was right when I, my first year out of college, you know, Lynn Bias's death. Yeah. Walking into the newsroom, hearing about that. Cause I had just seen Lynn earlier that year. Um, I, was, I was working in the Howard University Sports Information Office and the women's okay. basketball yeah it was playing over at maryland so we're over at maryland covering the women's game and here comes lynn walking through the gym full length leather coat black leather coat of course you no know, trench coat <laughs> and just 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 looking like kumo d dude he was <laughs> you know he was it yeah he yeah was, no lynn he was, was jordan before jordan in some yes, ways sir. you know yeah and um and then to walk into the office as, as a like I said, fresh out of college, and here he had passed. It's like you gotta be kidding me. Right. And so it's like moments like that that stay with me. Guys who, or, or just the emotion of, of of the realness of a moment. The games are the games, all those sorts of things. But man, that's real life when you start talking yeah. about that stuff. And I think yeah. that's why it stays with me more. Yeah, the humanity of it. And like I said, um, every time you speak. Uh, there is a, a a serious tone and the humanity of things kind of come through with you know, what connects to you. You could tell. And, and I appreciate that because even if you don't know it, to me, that's a sign of vulnerability. That's admirable. Like, I appreciate we, it, man. Yeah, man. Like, I we like, we like I'll to tell do you this. Mm -hmm. uh, no, we'll do it again. Whenever you need me, you just call me. Yeah. But um, part part of what's happening now, at least with me and this profession um, I have to give credit to Colin Kaepernick, truly, because when I saw that young brother stand up, yes, sir. I said, for all those times where I didn't speak on things in this business, because it might have been uncomfortable or whatever, I said to myself, never again. And so I felt like from that point when I saw him um, take that stand, take a knee, that I knew what my purpose was as I go to the finish line. And my, my purpose was to shine a light on these things and to be truthful about all these issues. And it's cost me some friends, particularly in the business. And that's okay. I feel you. Because then they weren't really my friends. 
if they can't understand where I'm coming from on it. But I have to give him credit for that in helping me understand before I reach that finish line what it is I want to accomplish with whatever time I have left. And that's why I speak on some of these issues so, so frankly. I'm like, look, I'm in a position in an age where I have that opportunity. There are younger folk who can't do it. And I understand that, you know, and, and yeah. I, don't, I don't place anything on them because of it. But for where I'm at now, I'm like, man, this I'm is your place. Years old, you know? Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'll find another job. <laughs> My man. Hey, you, we talking to the same dude right now. It's because it's funny to me because you mentioned Junior Seau and immediately I thought of Derrick Rose and yeah. what happened uh, for my career. I will never, I will never uh, say differently. Like the, my career took off because I was covering Derrick Rose and, mm-hmm. you know, we had a different interaction. I won't say like we were best friends or whatever the case may be, but they were, you know, you look around in the locker room and you're like, Oh, there's a relatability factor here that none of these guys get and can't understand why this dude is so soft-spoken or why he doesn't trust. It was mostly a trust thing. Yep. He didn't, he didn't feel comfortable enough talking in the manner that everybody else did. So in, in that, I think there was a trust gap with him. Like these people are going to take what I don't know or how I don't know to say certain things and use it against me. So I'm going to be even more introverted. Then you get him offside and, you know, outside the cameras and is, is Derek, you know, who went to Beasley is Derek who you see on 83rd street is Derek who you watch in high school. Like is a different dude. And, and the Colin Kaepernick thing for me, you know, you just said it was the, you know, you feel like you're coming up against the the end of it or, you know, you're on the you're on the back nine, as they say, of the career that that was right when I locally had gotten the the position that I was um, that I sought after for 21 years, like 11 years old. I knew what I wanted and I got to the point where I finally got it, you know, drive time hosting on the station that I grew up listening to. And then Colin Kaepernick did what he had to do. And all I said was, hey, y'all, there's, there's a lot of days that black people have around y'all that aren't the best of days, but we can't say shit about it because, you know, we know how what light we're going to be painted in. And I said that and it, it was a brush fire. And the reason why it was a brush fire is because nobody around me seemingly wanted to jump into that bag. But it wasn't like I was like, hey, you know, I'm the race guy. It was like, hey, I cry when the Charlie Hebdo thing happened. But I don't see any tears when Walter Scott gets shot down in front of y'all. So, you know, and, and on top of that, like where I was in life. So it's it's crazy to hear the same uh, feelings in, evoked from invoked from that moment that so many at the time didn't understand. Like I was tell, we were telling people, hey, you're going to be on the wrong side of history on this one. Be careful. And I'm talking about national commentators, guys who I thought were my favorites. I'll never forget. There was a quarterback who still does a lot of work on a very national uh, platform who at the end of an interview, because we brought him on and he was talking his New York stuff. I was talking my Chicago stuff. But at the end of the interview, he said to me that I won't let him disrespect my flag. And I told him, I told him it's his flag too. Right. And throughout the, throughout the conversation, he was like, you know, I don't want you to get emotional. I was like, man, my, my voice is at a regular pitch, but it was all the same tropes and all the same bullshit that you ran into up until that point. And I was like, oh, this is what it is. So if I talk about this 5% of the time and you talk about it, none of the time, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm banging it home every time I get a microphone. And then, you know, I, I was let go and things happen, but man, it's so crazy that 
guys like yourself and, and, and a lot of the women I talk to in this business uh, who are minorities as well, like the simple things, the simple asks are always the worst ones, right? Like whether it be the, the tomahawk chop or, you know, naming these teams, like things that won't really change your life, but might change somebody else's if they don't have to be um, subject to it. It's, it's, it's like I said, a, a study in human behavior that is fascinating and sometimes uh, very worrisome to me. But, you know, we'll, we'll save that for another day. Thank you so much. Hey, by the way, what you're listening to, this is Spotify. You know, we're going to put a playlist together of the people who have joined this show. The new stuff, old stuff, whatever you're listening to these days. What, what, what does Jim Trotter have in his AirPods? Bro, I'm I'm so old school, man. Give it to me. It's, Give it's, to me. It, you know, the funny thing is, and you know this, music fits with whatever your mood is. So For depending sure. on what my mood is, is going to determine what I'm going to listen to. So, um, but you can always believe that somewhere in there, there's going to be some Frankie Beverly and Mays. There's going to be some Anita Baker. There you go. Um, you know, there's going to be some Michael Jackson. Um you know, uh, Rick James. I can go down the list. Uh, so, then, so basically, Jim Trotter is coming down your block in a turtle top van with cool smoke billowing out of it in a in a linen in a linen you know outfit. That's that's no, what but I'm, I'm a, talking but about. I'm a, but but I will also blow people away too because there will be days where it will be the Dixie Chicks, or now they call themselves the Chicks. Yeah, you gotta or, be careful. What was Lady Annabellum? I don't know if they're still going by that name or whatnot. But it'll I be, have to take that off too. Yeah, it'll be some it'll be some country. In All there the too. canceled names is what Jim Trotter likes you know, to listen to. You know, so yeah, so it, I mean, it just it just depends on the man. My iPod is so eclectic; it's yeah, crazy, man. Yeah, so, yeah. as it and should. I, and I, but I say that to you. I know I always run on here. But I say that like when you pull up, let's say at a car wash or something, and and you happen to be in one of those moods, so you're listening to something that nobody's expecting, and oh. you see someone get in your car, and, and you know what's going through their head. Did you like, steal this car? You know, <laughs> you know. His brothers in here listening to Soundgarden. We should uh, you know? <laughs> hit the OnStar real quick so this person can get their car back. Yeah. Hey man, I appreciate you, bro. This was uh, this was enlightening, entertaining, and I, and I I hope people got as much from it as I got from it. Thank you so much for giving me uh, what forty five minutes more of your time than you had to. So I appreciate. Oh, that. bro, it, I enjoyed it, man. Like I said, call me anytime you need me. I'll be there. So it was uh, that was the fastest forty five minutes I can remember. So My it's man. all good. My man, Jim Trotter, joining us here on the Full Go Podcast with Jason Goff. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddle boards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Lance Briggs. You're listening to The Full Go with Jason Goff. 
As always, we appreciate you listening to the Full Go Podcast with Jason Garth, brought to you by The Ringer and Spotify is the gang. We have another one of the dudes. Uh, Sarudi, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm just inviting all the people that like I'm friendly with and admire onto the pod, and then we'll bring on the people who disagree with me and hate me. We'll, we'll save that for the later episodes. And maybe we've had those dudes on that hate me now, and, and I don't know it yet, but a dude who I am fond of, not only in this city, but uh, his national work as well. Uh, he is he is also the Milwaukee Bucks color analyst, which I have to congratulate him once again on. And longtime Big Ten Network guy, one of the best in the business, member of the Flying Illini that, that brought a lot of glory to Champagne back in the late 80s. He is Stephen Bardo joining us here on the Full Go Podcast. Mr. Bardo, how you feeling, brother? I'm doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me on and uh, happy belated birthday, my man. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. I'm uh, I'm out here getting old, and all y'all that are older than me just seem like y'all getting younger. So I got to figure out like if I got to go vegan or what the hell is going on with y'all. But the good genes from the flying Illini, I'm around them all the time. Whether I see Bardo or whether I'm next to Kendall, who you know look like he's 21 years old again. Y'all dudes, y'all dudes keep it keep it in shape and keep it tight, man. That's why another reason. The discipline is another reason why I respect y'all. So. Take me back, man. I know, I know we're going to get into the Big Ten, but take me back because you're a guy who, you know, Carbondale, Illinois. I, I was, there for, was there for nine months. And they were the greatest nine months of my life. Came back home and jumped into the career. But uh, where did it start? And how did you know that basketball was going to take you places? Well, Jason, basketball was my family business. Uh, my father played college basketball in the late 50s, early 60s. My brother uh, was recruited to Indiana the year they won the national championship, and he finished his career at the Citadel. My sister played junior college basketball, and my mom could probably hoop if she wanted to, but <laughs> she was just the goon of the family, so she, right. she uh, you know, she stayed away, but supported us. So basketball's always been in my blood. I'm the youngest of uh, three siblings, um, and so I really had no choice, and I embraced it. I love it, and it's it's been uh, consistent with me uh, throughout my life. Yeah, and and the, the game, you know, whenever I hear you talk about the game, I hear not only the passion, but uh, the teaching aspect of the game. You know, hell, you, on, your, on your Facebook and on your Instagram, you're teaching young color commentators the, the do's and don'ts and some of the pitfalls that come along with that part of the, of the industry. But for... For your time in high school and then going to college, and we're going to talk about those college years, but I always found it interesting, the dudes who played defense in college or the dudes who played defense on the professional level, like it had to start somewhere. You weren't out here just getting six steals a game and people were like, hey, that's the guy. Like you had to be able to put the ball in the hole. I, I, I joke about Tony Allen. Like Tony Allen was a real big-time scorer in the city of Chicago, and then he goes to Oklahoma State and he hurts his knee, you know, obviously finds his way into the the NBA because he was a sheer talent with the Boston Celtics as a young dude, but defending people allowed Tony Allen to become the triple OG that we call him. And 10, 12 years later, we're talking about his games and his impact on that Memphis Grizzlies squad. Defensively, when you know there's a role that has to be played, but you knew you were a scorer, like when does that, when does that switch over in terms of what you have to become? Because I think a lot of players struggle with that when they're trying to prove themselves, whether it be on the collegiate level or on the professional level. You know, Jason, that's a great question. And I think, you know, I was a 20 223 per night score in high school. Uh, was top 50 recruit. 
Well, when you get to Illinois and you look to your right and there's a future 14-year NBA vet in Nick Anderson, then you look to your left, there's a, a future 15-year yeah. NBA vet in Kendall Gill, and they weren't the best on the team. It was really Kenny Battle was probably the best player on that team that played a little pro ball. Lowell Hamilton played a little bit. Uh, me and Marcus Liberty played a little bit. And so when you when you have a collection of players, you've got to find – you've got to get in where you fit in. Right. And I couldn't score the way that these guys could score. Uh, and so I was a, a point guard, a leader, and a defender. And my dad told me that if you can concentrate on those three things, when you get to college, you'll start. And, I mean, you'll start early. And I thought, man, my dad don't know what he's talking about. But <laughs> – I didn't, I didn't like getting his wrath, so I listened to him. And sure enough, he was exactly right. After the 10th game, I got, got to start and never came out. Why the University of Illinois and who else were you looking at when you were making your decision? I, was, I, looked, I took a visit to Notre Dame, Michigan State, Ohio State, Illinois, and, and um, man, I'm missing one. Oh, Northwestern. Oh, okay. okay. There you yeah, go. There and you go. I really, I really wanted to go to Northwestern when I got out of the car to come home, and then my dad said, "Son, get in the car." <laughs> and him being a former uh, college basketball player, but a current, he was a current college professor at the time, college. Okay. Of and Jason, he told me, he said, he said, Stephen, you'll be miserable at Northwestern. I know they got a great uh, broadcasting school and all that. He said, but you're really, this is a decision to play basketball. Yeah. All these schools that you're looking at have great academic standards. So you can't go wrong with that. He said, but you're going to be miserable. And so I, I got out of the car, told mom I was going to Illinois. But I, I'm, we were at a uh, Nike All-American camp in New Jersey. Irvin Small, Nick Anderson, Marcus Liberty, and I believe Lowell Hamilton was there. And, and typically, Jason, back in the day when you had those national camps, Mm -hmm. regional guys would kind of congregate together. So all the guys from Detroit and right, Michigan, right. Would, so the guys from Chicago and guys from Illinois would congregate. And we said, man, it'd be kind of cool if we all went to Illinois. And everybody kept their, everybody kept their word. And that's how we got to Illinois. See, look at you. Y'all the, the old cast and look at these young dudes today and be like, oh, y'all always teaming up. You know, ain't nobody want to play against nobody. And look at y'all in the mid to late 80s was out here doing the same shit LeBron and D-Wade was doing. You know, it's funny, too, because you mentioned those tournaments. And anytime somebody mentions Jordan or Larry Bird or Magic Johnson and just wanting to tear your face off and compete and all that, like back then, High school basketball was more important than AAU, AAU basketball, so you yep. you weren't you weren't no you weren't playing with who the best in North Carolina was or who the best in Indiana was or who the best in in Michigan was. You were actually going against those dudes, and your head, head basketball coach was more important than the AAU coach. Now, fast forward twenty years, if if I know I'm gonna get through the thirty game season with the dudes who can't play, and then all of a sudden I got a thirty game season with my boys who we gonna be traveling with, that kind of changed. The, the the psyche of the competitor if if and if i'm wrong tell me you know tell me where i'm wrong but the aau life as opposed to the high school basketball culture especially in chicago and especially in the city uh i'm sorry the state of illinois that's kind of changed and morphed what we see now in the professional ranks as well yeah it, it was definitely different back then because like you said when you're in high school man it it was everything and you didn't want to wait till the summer to do do stuff you you wanted to shine so right. that you could have bragging rights. You wanted to shine so that the ladies was coming to holler at you. 
<laughs> you want to shine for all the right reasons, right? Right, right. And then, so in the summers, you know, you'd go to these camps and things, and AAU was just starting back then. So it really wasn't, like you said, it wasn't the the emphasis that it is today. And so today I see guys, and they kind of – it looked like they half-assed and nonchalant during the high school season. Then they try to turn it on in AAU. And I always tell coaches and their players, how you do anything is how you do everything. If you don't hit the court to, to – main destroy and win every single time then you know in the fourth quarter in a game when you don't feel like it you won't play hard so i know yeah. i'm critical i'm a basketball purist i'm starting to understand the nuances of the aau system but i like i i, I appreciated the system as a way it was when i came through because the emphasis was on high school basketball yeah, for sure. And those coaches, obviously, who are also trying to keep jobs but steer guys in the right direction. Of course, you hear the stories of coaches who took advantage of players and, you know, ended certain players' careers, but but just by steering them away from an opportunity. But for the most part, you know, when you look at the high school basketball or the importance of the high school basketball coach, it is definitely, uh, definitely lessened. When, when I say the name Lou Henson to you, uh, what do you think about and why – why did Lou sell you on what was Champaign, Illinois? Ironically, Jason, I, I, I was very fortunate to have my dad in the process. And one of the things my dad said is do not pick the head coach for your choice. Pick the school. Because if the coach gets fired and he leaves, you're going to leave with him? Or are you going to stay in school and get your degree? So it's, it's no knock on Coach Henson. I didn't pick Illinois because of Coach Henson. Okay. I am glad that I had the experience with coach because we could not stand each other when I played uh, because how did, how did that manifest itself? What did that look like? Um, <laughs> I, picked, I would, I, I, in the lead eight game against Syracuse, I had a bad game because Sherman Douglas was wearing my ass out. And I found out with about two minutes left and I come to the bench and he says, Hey, Bardo, are you trying to throw the game? And Kendall does this voice every pregame oh, show, by the God. way. Oh my God. I I almost my head almost exploded and I asked you if you was trying to throw the game, dude. I I I lunged at him. I said I'm gonna fuck you up, seriously. And and Jimmy Collins, the assistant coach, grabbed me, said, "Sit your black ass down, like sit down before I hurt you," because he knew I was going at Lou's neck. So I didn't understand, Jason. I was so immature in college. Of course, I didn't understand the pressures that these college coaches go through. I didn't understand that Lou Henson had a specific way to develop boys into men. I didn't necessarily agree with it, but it, it works. And he's an outstanding coach. I got, to, I, I grew to love him once I finished playing and had my own children because a lot of things he would tell us, I ended up repeating to my own kids. So it was, it was really a weird situation. He, he came to my wedding. Uh, he was always supportive of what I was doing and I grew to love the guy and I miss him dearly. Uh, God rest his soul. But yes, sir. In, in college, bro, I, ooh, we could not stand each other. <laughs> hey, everybody needs that kind of relationship that they look back on fondly. And, and that's what I'm saying. At least you look back on it with with fondness in, oh, yeah. in terms of understanding uh, the atmosphere in a relationship as opposed to, you know, because a lot of guys, I, you know, especially in this game that, that we cover and that you've been a part of all your life, a lot of guys never quite understand when it's them. 
or never quite understand what the limiting factors are. And sometimes that limits them because they never really grow because they're always stuck in that moment of bucking against authority. I know I have gone through that throughout my life, right? Where it's like, is this person really looking out for me or does this person have the drop on me from a power standpoint and I just have to go with it? So I can definitely appreciate that. You mentioned your, your teammates, Kenny Battle, Lowell Hamilton. You mentioned Kendall Gill, Nick Anderson. Uh, that crew, when did you guys know all right, we're not just some team in the Big Ten. We're not just, you know, some team in the nation. We're, we're going to be one of the best in the country because Kendall has told some of those stories, you know, about, about coming off the bench one game and going off for 23 because he was angry he didn't start. Like, when did y'all know, okay, this is, this is going to be a thing? I think there were two games. The, our sophomore season, we lost to Villanova in the second round. We had them – we were up 10 points with about two minutes left and did not hit our free throws. And that left such a nasty taste in our mouth. And we knew that had we won that game, we would have played Kentucky in the Sweet 16 and we would have blasted Kentucky. Just the way Was that, that the Ed Pinckney team, the Villanova squad? Uh, Ed no. Pinckney was a little bit earlier. Okay. All right. So, yeah. So this was uh, uh, Gary West. Okay. And uh, Massey. They were undersized, tough, gritty team. But we we were wearing them out and just didn't hit our free throws. And it, oh. it left a nasty taste in our mouth. We all stayed in Champaign that summer and worked our tails off. But the game for me was at LSU. And Kendall Gill tells this story all the time. I'm the defensive player of the year in the Big Ten. Probably the best defender in the country. Because the Big Ten by far at that time was the best oh, yeah. conference in the country. Oh, yeah. Kendall Gill was an outstanding guard. Now, you got you to understand, I'm 6'6", six, six, Kendall 6'5". Six, I already know who you're about to talk about. <laughs> Chris Jackson. And, man, Chris wore me and Kendall out. He had 29 points. He fouled out with nine minutes left. We put 130, uh, 131 on LSU at their place. Their head coach, legendary Dale Brown, said, that's the best team I've seen in 30 years in this Ooh. building. Ooh. That that was a night that I knew that we had we had something special. Yeah, that uh that Chris Jackson game sticks in uh, Kendall Gill's craw to this day. Yeah, <laughs> he, he you he talks about the great games every once in a while, but yeah, Chris Jackson come up at least once a month, right? Like, oh yeah, he, as he should, because he <laughs> he was wearing us out with the you know little little head bob and yeah, the, yeah. the quick release, and he couldn't do couldn't do anything with it. Yeah, Chris still hitting jumpers on folks to this day. Yeah. To this, to this day. Uh and then you guys get to the to well, the season. The the 89 season. Uh you start the year and and Dick Vitale gave y'all the flying the line I named before that, right? Uh right at the beginning of the year. Okay, at the beginning of the year. Right at the beginning so, of the year. When that moment happens, you know, we're talking late 80s, early 90s, Dick Vitale is the Harry Carey of basketball, right? Like everybody's listening to him and following the slogans. And when he says something about a guy, like even as a kid, I'll never forget the first time I got introduced to Allen Iverson. It was because Dick Vitale is like, listen, this is the best player in the country and you're going to find out. So when he gives you guys that nickname, how, does, how do things change, not only around campus, but nationally for y'all? Well, it was crazy because uh, Kendall, Nick Anderson, and Kenny Battle had to come up with aliases. Thank God none of them used Ron Mexico. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not <laughs> messing with you. I'm not even I, – I do know what you mean, but I'm not yeah, messing with but, you. So, you know, we, when we travel, 
there were so many agents, so many runners, so many women that were trying to get next to our players. Right. That they came up and said, you know what? These guys have to have an alias. So, oh, so when you're checking in the hotels. Yeah, when we're checking the hotels because there would be, you know, the old school hotels, you go to the ends of the hall and there'd be staircases on both sides. There would be people hiding in the staircases to try to get on our floor. So after the second time it happened, we had security at, you know, at the staircase. At each end, right. Just to keep people away. So once that flying Illini moniker stuck and we, the way we played and I believe we came back from 19 down to beat Missouri that year. Missouri was fourth in the country. We were fifth in the country. Right after that game, it really started to take on rock star status. And every game was like an event. Didn't matter where we went. Didn't matter who we played. Uh, they were just, they were events. And, you know, I look back on it and shake my head because, boy, if we had camera phones, we would have been in trouble. Man, of course. Yeah, KG has told many a story that I will never repeat on any airwave of mine. Yeah, yeah. I I can only imagine. Yeah, I, I say that part too all the time about social media and what social media has done to the current climate of player, where the lack of trust that a player should have, that frankly these days, uh, is off the charts. Which means uh, psych- psychologically, you're affected in a different way. You know, we call Kevin Durant sensitive. I was at the game last night, uh, sitting across the, from the bench, and Kevin Durant was talking to a lot of fans, right? Like, you know, telling fans to cool out, telling fans, "Hey, what's up?" Like that kind of thing. James Johnson was getting chided by former Bulls fans well current Bulls fans for being a former Bull it's like these dudes hear it and then they open up their phones and they see it so I can only imagine what the climate would have been like back then and maybe maybe it would be like what it is now just be back then in the 80s because it's a different it's a different world that these dudes live in today as opposed like you just mentioned to just asking security to be at both ends of the halls like I'm sure when Duke had Zion Williamson that was just understood that we got a commodity that no one can get close to yeah it's definitely different nowadays and i feel for the players because we're hypercritical because we get to see everything they do mm-hmm. they can't hide there's nothing yeah. that they can do that they can really hide they can't have a bad day without the world knowing about it so yeah. i i feel for them um i'm very impressed by a number of players that seem to handle it and not miss a beat um uh, and the guys that get caught up hey i i i I have sympathy for him because, I, you know, I'm 53 and I just grew up yesterday. So, man, who are you I mean, telling? Stuff like <laughs> last week on social media. So, you know, I feel for him. All right. So let's t- take me through the tournament leading up to the final four. Um, you know, everybody says you just got to win. What, six games? At that time, it was five games, right? Five or six games? I was six. Yep. Six, right? So yep. you just got to win six games. And you go from pod to pod. At that time, it was region to region. What, outside of the loss in the Final Four, what was the, the point in the tournament where you were uh, most amazed or most awestruck by what, what the moment is? Because it, it's turned into what it's turned to, but – the footprints and the, the blueprints and the foundation was laid, you know, when Magic and, and Bird went at it, you know, Indiana State and Michigan State, and then all the way to the late 80s. What was that, what was that like for you, being in that tournament atmosphere and, and understanding, okay, this is, this is big time now? Well, you know, our first and second round were in Indianapolis in the old RCA Dome. And if you've ever played basketball in a dome, it's just a different experience. And, you know, it takes a while to get used to. So we played our first two games there, had two tough games. Then we went to the old Metro Dome in Minneapolis. 
And that was off the chain because you're talking Sweet 16 against a Louisville team that had four first-round draft picks. And then you're talking about Sweet uh, Elite Eight against Sherman Douglas, man, Billy Owens, Derek DC, Coleman. In D.C., yeah. David Johnson, uh, Matt Rowe. I mean, these dudes were stacked. And so just the every level of the tournament that you advance to, the pressure intensifies and it's not, it's, it's, it doesn't double, it's exponential. And then by the time we get to Seattle in the old uh, kingdom, I'll never forget this, Jason. Any, anytime I get a chance to speak to kids or students or black basketball players, I share this story. I remember lining up and the PA announcer will say the, the number one seed out of the Midwest region, the University of Illinois fighting Illini. And there's a roar that goes yeah. up. And I'm trying to run on the court, and I freeze for a second because I watched every Final Four probably since I was four or five years old. All of them run, ran through my head. Goose Givens at Kentucky, uh, Dr. Duncan Stein at Louisville. Yeah. Uh, all these different things, all these memories ran across my mind. Then Kendall hit me upside the head. We ran out there and got beat on the last second shot. But the experience and everything that went around it was incredible and I'll never forget that yeah no doubt and now to the kids that you're covering these days uh the big 10 they look they're talking about nine ten teams getting in the tournament uh eight for sure uh Juwan is doing a great job at Michigan he's got some really really good players got the sophomore that a lot of people are thinking might be the best player in the big 10 what's the big 10 outlook right now the four or five top teams i'm hearing a lot of ohio state and purdue maryland is a sneaky pick for a lot of people and michigan obviously but what's the breakdown for you as you go into this season actually that starts tonight well i'm i'm gonna throw the gauntlet down and the big 10 uh we get way too much credit because last season when they got to the tournament they got their asses handed to them and i'm of the mindset that if i'm gonna call Big 10 games, I'm not going to be the hype man. I can't do it. And so these, there were more teams last year, in my opinion, in the Big 10 that had a chance to get to the second weekend than this season. Mm-hmm. However, the Big 10's top teams this year, I think, have a much better chance of advancing in the tournament uh, based on their makeup. So to okay. me, I've got Purdue as the best team in the Big Ten. I think they're a Final Four contender. Um, best front line in college basketball was seven foot four Zach Eady. They've got uh, Travion Williams, who's a stud. Then they've got two freshmen, the two top Indiana kids. Uh, Caleb First is six ten. Trey Kaufman Wren is six nine. These guys can play. Purdue brought back everybody, so I got them number one. I've got Illinois number two. I think they're the deepest team in all of college basketball. Okay. I know people might kind of like cringe at that, but now that backcourt, they got four or five guys that can start for anybody. They got studs. And then Coleman Hawkins is 6'10", according to Brad Underwood, has been the best player in the offseason and the preseason. He's a sophomore. Can do a little bit of everything. So the Illini are deep. Then I've got Michigan. You you mentioned Hunter Dickinson, one of the best players in all of college basketball. They've got a kid, Caleb Houston, that will be a lottery pick next year. Uh, Musa Diabate is probably going to join him. May not be a lottery pick, but I think he could be a first-round pick. Michigan's got the number one recruiting class in the country. They're loaded. Then you've got uh, Ohio State team. If they don't lose Dwayne Washington Jr., they're talked about as being the, the possibly the preseason favorite. 
Now, EJ Lydell is a, is, a, is a load, too. He's a, he's a load, and they bring back most of the guys from their team, and they've got two impact uh, transfers. And then Michigan State and Maryland kind of round out that top seven of the 14 Big Ten teams. But it's, it's going to be competitive like it always is, uh, but it'll be a little bit more top-heavy than it was last season. All right, before we spring you, best day of your career, worst day of your career? Wow. Uh, playing basketball or calling games? Either. Ooh, best day of my career was um, my last game as a professional in Japan. We won the championship, the league championship, and I've got a. Uh, I had a photographer in the in the crowd that took a shot of me because I we did a visualization thing, Jason. And okay. Before that season, and the the sports psychiatrist told us visualize what you're going to look like when you win the championship. So I had a picture of Muhammad Ali. Yeah, with his hands raised. Right. Standing yeah. over Sonny Liston, and that's what I did. And so that was my best day. The worst day was probably getting cut from the Pistons and having to go home and tell my wife and my son yet again, we have to move. So that was that was probably my worst day. Mm, it is. I, I make sure that people understand that, you know, with the wins come the L's. A lot of people don't right. talk about the L's, so I appreciate you. Steven, you know, man, like uh, past the, the broadcast and past the being a fan of yours, you, you've, uh, you've held me down in some real situations with always with some great words. You're a dude that I, I look to for friendship, fellowship, all those good things, but you're a solid cat and you're great at your job. And once again, congrats on the Milwaukee Bucks gig. Uh, thanks for giving me some of your time, man. I truly appreciate it. Oh, anytime, Jason. You know you're my man, brother. You know how we get down. Yes, sir. Thanks yes, for sir. having me on. No doubt. Stephen Bardo joining us here on the Full Go Podcast. The Full Go with Jason Golf. All right, that does it for episode 27 of The Full Go. We'll be back Thursday, hopefully, with a WNBA champion. Yeah, I'm talking about Kalia Copper. Looking forward to her joining us. Plus, we went long today, so we'll get to a bunch of your voicemails. You can always call us at 773-359-3103. That's 773-359-3103. Make sure you lock that in your contacts, The Full Go pod voicemail. As always, thank you to our producers, Saruti. Never ever call me Steve. And of course, Tanny, our guy Chris Tannehill. And we want to thank you for sharing and downloading, more importantly, subscribing to the Full Go Podcast. We appreciate your listenership. We appreciate you hanging out with us every single, you know, Sunday, of course, Tuesday and Thursday. For Saruti and for Tanny, I am Jason Goff. Thanking you for listening to the Full Go Podcast with Jason Goff, brought to you by The Ringer. As always, Spotify is the gang. Make sure when you're out and about, make sure you're taking care of each other. Make sure you're being safe.